Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. If something has been written about the Seminole Wars, whether it's a first-hand account, such as a memoir or a letter, or a secondary source, such as a history, they are likely to find it at the Florida Historical Society in Cocoa. For instance, to read a first-hand account of the day the captured Seminole War leader Osceola was paraded down the streets of St. Augustine as a prisoner, they can at the Florida Historical Society. If they want to read about the grinding horror of a surgeon's life, cutting and sewing and amputating at the Second Battle of Loxahatchee in late January 1838, they can at the Florida Historical Society. And if they just want to look at the mundane records regarding pay, supply, and daily life at an army fort on the frontier of what was then called the Florida War, they can at the Society, often in the author's original handwriting. In this episode, we speak with Ben DiBiase. Ben is the Society's archivist and director of public outreach. He shares his insights on the place the Seminole Wars hold in Florida's overall history, and he discusses some of the more important books on these wars in the Society's collection and how listeners can access them. Ben DiBiase, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Hey, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me. How big a part do you see the Seminole Wars as having played in the overall Florida story? I feel like the Seminole Wars are a major piece of the Florida history story for a lot of reasons, because it really was an integral part of the shaping of Florida, especially during the territorial period, to understand the beginnings of that relationship between the state and the Seminole and the Kasuki tribes of Florida today. You have to go back to the Seminole Wars period. How big a deal was the Second Seminole War nationally at the time? I think it's important for people to understand that at a national level was front page news. It was a big part of the national consciousness at that time. So even though very few people remember or think about much of it today, it was a big part of what was happening in Washington. And it was also a massive proportion of the Army's budget was being allocated to the war in Florida. What's the big challenge that historians face with researching the Seminole Wars? Seminole Wars, there can be in some instances the paucity of records. It would be hard to figure out, especially with forts, you know, where they were so ephemeral, trying to find information about some of these, it's, it's difficult. Among the records that are available on the Seminole Wars, it's likely that Florida Historical Society has them in its collection. How do you classify or categorize these? We have a really extensive collection of secondary sources, basically anything that's been written or published about the Seminole Wars, we have a copy of it here in the archive. So for researchers, this is usually the go-to, start with secondary material and then work down towards some of the primary source material we have. And that's where I think, to answer your question, we probably have the most valuable, historically speaking, material or in our primary sources. What are some special considerations researchers must take when consulting secondary or primary sources? When we have students or those who may not be as familiar with the Seminole Wars period in Florida history, we'll generally start them with the secondary sources. We'll pull down one of those comprehensive books like the missiles and say, okay, read through this first, and then we'll start picking apart individual pieces if we want to examine further and if you have more questions, that sort of thing. Start with the primers, and then we can kind of work backwards and, and get into the minutiae of the history of, of the wars and their impact on the wars. When you look at an original source, it's okay, who wrote this? Who was it written for? Uh, what was going on when this was actually written? And how does that all factor into their conclusions? And then how can I take those conclusions and compare to what we know today and then come up with, again, that continuance of the same narrative? One always has to be cognizant of when digging through secondary sources. At the time in which it was published and the environment in which it was published and the audience that it was published for, these biases combined together and have to be considered when examining a secondary or even a primary source from very early on. Even uh, secondary sources that were published in the mid-20th century, these were very well researched. The history of the Seminole Wars comes to mind, the Hones book. But they were written in the 1960s, and they reflect historiography from that time period. They reflect attitudes, understandings, and available source material as it was known at that time period. History is an evolving study. I'd encourage anyone to begin digging into the wars 
and we're always constantly trying to push further and further to understand more and more about a particular topic. It's interesting you raised the book by John and Mary Lou Missile because 15 to 20 years ago they wrote a book on the Seminole War and now they've done a revamp and John told me that about two-thirds of the book has been revised based on new information they've come across and greater understanding about the time period. That illustrates my point perfectly because even their original publication, which I remember reading as an undergraduate student taking a territorial Florida history class and saying, the Seminole Wars, yeah, I think I heard about that. What was that? And then reading through that, the first edition, uh, really wonderfully done. They did an incredible job. They're great researchers. And then, of course, they've been instrumental in the Seminole Wars Foundation, I know, over the years. But yeah, it's wonderful to see that, that they're taking on that undertaking, revamping their own work, which I'm sure can be difficult <laughs> to do on your own. Generally, you throw it out there and say, okay, somebody else redo this 15 years <laughs> down the road. But to do it yourself, that's great. You know, I'm happy to see that because, again, that's going to get us closer and closer to the past. And here at the Archive, we'll have a lot of student groups come in, and, and we have to talk about primary sources, kind of the building blocks of history, and how historians interpret primary and secondary sources. They talk about the very basic concepts of archival science and why it's important and all of that. So it's good to see that they're pushing that forward and they're continuing that narrative because it is this collaborative evolutionary process. One of the criticisms was it didn't have much of the seminal side. When they rewrote this book, there was a lot on the seminal side in perspective because in the intervening time, they had built up a tremendous amount of goodwill with the Seminole tribe of Florida who were then willing to give them input as they revised it and give them what they understood to be the seminal side. And so the book is much richer this time around because of that input and because they were willing to take constructive criticism from folks. And that's so vitally important. I think that's what's going to make a solid work, is that you take a criticism and information from all sides, sometimes from different perspectives. For example, integrating archaeological evidence from not only fort sites, but from Seminole encampments to understand what their daily life was like and how that define capabilities during wartime, whatever it is, whatever the question is, to trying to integrate as much as you can any kind of ethno-history that's been captured, you know, about the Seminole Indians coming, like I said, written by the Seminoles, that is vitally important. The experience of the indigenous people involved in these conflicts, you know, to sort of read between the lines, you know, and figure out, okay, well, what do they mean when they said here, when they're describing, you know, what this camp looked like, or what person looked like, or how they understood the language, what can we get from written source, and then piece it together, and that's why, as I've been saying, there are a lot of holes in what we understand, but we're always trying to fill those holes much as possible, and that's why continuing to research the same period and the same topics is so important, because we're going to come up with new conclusions as, as you said before, as new evidence comes to light, we want to integrate that evidence. Ben, you've done research yourself, in this case a paper on how the deerskin trade later influenced seminal resistance to Indian removal. Tell us about that. My master's thesis dealt with the deerskin fur trade in Florida in the late 18th and early 19th century, particularly the Pant Leslie Company and their involvement. My research really deals more with mostly creek trade, but to a lesser extent, the early Seminole trade and their involvement with this Scottish company, and then the later land acquisition from the Creeks and Seminoles that became you know, the Forbes Grant and all of these huge land purchases into the territorial period. Then I was always just really fascinated with the deerskin trade because there was a tremendous volume of deerskin that was being exported out of the southeast via Pensacola to markets in London, and I think that gets glossed over when we talk about the fur trade in North America. We focus on the northern part of the country, but there was a thriving trade gets missed in the historiography. There's a great book. There are several great studies about it, but probably the best is Deerskins and Duffels by Holland Braun. She's a professor up at, uh, I think she's still teaching at Auburn, um, but she broke down the trade in the southeast. And I mean, it was incredible. They were, they were moving a lot of uh, merchandise out of Florida. And as a result, a lot of European goods were coming into these, especially Lower Creek communities, changed their culture in a lot of ways, and in some respects led up to differences that would lead to the Creek Civil Wars, you know, the Red White Stick Wars, that, that then kind of increased the Seminoles moving into Florida, you know, as a result of some of those wars. So 
you know, it's all this domino effect of things happening in the Southeast. How did taking material on credit, as well as the dramatic plummeting in the numbers of white-tailed deer because of overhunting, inadvertently set Seminole, Trader, and Settlers on a collision course that eventually broke out in violence and fueled Seminole resentment and resistance when the Army came down to implement removal policies? The population of white-tailed deer plummeted towards the the end of the 1790s, and uh, there were other issues too with inflation of market prices in London too for that particular type of leather, which was a deerskin leather was a very supple, a softer leather, like a cowhide. So they'd use it for really fine things like gloves and for uh, horse tack and things like that. There were some substantial fluctuations in market prices, and they really flooded the market by that time period. These deerskins up to that point were currency, and you had Creeks and Seminoles that wanted the goods, but they didn't have enough skins to purchase it, so you purchase it on credit. The problem, of course, is that when the store, when the company calls in that credit and calls in that debt, what do you have to pay for it? Long story short, they ended up paying in land rights. At one point, there were fairly large purchases in Florida. There was a grant called the Forbes Grant. John Forbes was one of the uh, partners in the company. And they settled with the Spanish in Florida and with the, the Seminoles had occupied that land or at least had ownership of the land for something like 1.2 million acres of land in the Panhandle. Enormous, enormous tracts of land that were given to the company for absolution of debt owed by various clans in that area. What does that mean? Well, that means that you have these single landowners, these huge landowners that are very, very powerful individuals. And you also have an erosion of autonomy and power within many of the indigenous communities. And you also have this animosity growing among some of the tribes saying, well, they have no right to that. We never agreed to this. We actually have a collection of documents from the Pant Leslie Company. And in that collection are original promissory notes that are signed with a clan symbol by whomever that group representative was, who obviously didn't read or write English. This was being interpreted to them. They signed with their clan mark and may not have understood the terms entirely of what they were agreeing to. You know, they were operating on on a different level. So all of that kind of comes into play and, and created, I think, the recipe for what would become issues culminating into the Seminole Wars. Now, there was also just the physical encroachment onto that land, and then also, yeah, arguments over ownership of land and resources. All of that led the inevitable eventualities that were the Seminole Wars, the treaties, and then subsequent violence. So all of that, I think, ties in and is all part of the same story. And this leads us chronologically into items within the Florida Historical Society collection directly related to the Seminole Wars period. So, what materials do you have from Florida Territorial Governor Richard Keith Call? You have a really interesting collection from Call. Call was the third and fifth territorial governor of Florida, and we have his original letter book. So it's essentially a compilation of his ingoing and outgoing letters from the executive office during his time in office. But we also have a few hundred loose documents, handwritten original letters to and from Governor Call and some of his family members. And a lot of that material deals with the Seminole Wars, because of course Call was governor, at least partially during the Second Seminole War, uh, was head of the Florida militia for, for a time. So a lot of documents that we have relate directly to the, the happenings of the Seminole War in Florida. Very interesting to see it from that level. You also have papers related to the attempt to acquire the Dade Battlefield as a Florida State Park. What are those all about? In the early 20th century, the Florida Historical Society, after they had reincorporated, became interested in, in acquiring the Dade Battlefield site. And a lot of what we have are correspondence records between state and federal legislators to try and secure funding. We have a lot of documents that relate specifically to Frederick Cubberley, who was involved with the society, was on the board of directors for a number of years, was head of the society for several years, published prolifically in the Florida Historical Quarterly. So a lot of documents relating to his personal efforts on behalf of the society to try and acquire the property. And a lot of it really had to do with, much like today, trying to get people aware <laughs> that the Seminole Wars occurred that it had a, a tremendous impact on the development of Florida and that these types of sites, these battlefield sites, were important and were worth saving and were worth allocating public money to save, which was really the key thing that historians like Coverly and others had to get across to the public. Besides the Dade battlefield site, during the war there was also Fort Dade. What part did Fort Dade play in the war and how did the society obtain its extensive collection of materials related to Fort Dade? 
Ford Historical Society has a great collection of a little over 90 original documents, mostly orders for provisions and supply orders for troops that were stationed at Fort Dade in about 1838. And Fort Dade was located on the Withlacoochee River, and it guarded a bridge crossing the river. And it was a very important strategic location, especially early on in the war. And it was attacked several times. The, the bridge was burned several times. It was a big part of the early operations in the Second Seminole mm-hmm. War. The Society's collection, as I said, deals with what on the surface may seem like these kind of uh, mundane daily records of what was going on in the camp. But a lot of these records don't really exist anymore. So to have a collection of a hundred of these documents that came to the Society, they were donated sometime back, I believe in the 1930s, 1940s, they came to us from, I believe that was a private collector that then donated the uh, materials to the Society. But they're wonderful. These are all handwritten notes that talk about the conditions in the camp, the condition of soldiers, the number of soldiers that were sick, who was sick, what they were sick with, what they were afflicted with, and then lists of what they were ordering. And what's important about that, Second Seminole War, as I'm sure you know in your list, will know was tremendous financial cost to the federal government. It cost a lot of money to maintain troops in the field during that time period. So if you look at what they were ordering, in fact, if you just go through the sheets, you'll see that they had so many barrels of pork, salt, and rum, and all of these things that were deemed necessities to keep an army in the field. So at the very least, it kind of illustrates just the cost. But you could take all this stuff together, you know, look at the metrics, and really compare it to what the annual army budget was, and you can see how much it cost the Army to maintain the fight in Florida, especially in the early years, in the 1830s. Places like Fort Dade didn't last very long. Why didn't it last very long? We see this a lot, actually, in some of the documents, too, as I mentioned. There were a lot of people sick. It was was costly to keep the fort open and operating, and it was very difficult for these troops to stay in fighting shape in the Florida climate. We see this through various documents and letters and journals throughout the, especially the Second Seminole Wars period. Sickness was probably the biggest cause of troops being in the infirmary and of deaths. You know, there weren't as many who were killed by a, by a musket shot than died of dysentery or malarial fever or something like that. So they ended up just abandoning the fort by, I believe it was 1839, 1840. The fort was abandoned. And the other thing, too, we have to understand is that the, the campaign was moving further south. So if it no longer held the same strategic position, if they didn't necessarily need it, then they wouldn't keep it maintained because it just cost so much in terms of troops and, and, uh, and supplies. Another thing that the Dade records point out is the Army may have abandoned forts or burned them down and then in the next fighting season rebuilt them. And so the soldiers were a fixed cost there. But there's all these other expenses that comes along with the soldiers that the Fort Dade receipts show. So it wasn't just there was not much cost involved in rebuilding the fort for the next fighting season. You point out an interesting piece of something that's unique to the Florida Wars during this time period is that they weren't here in the summertime. So you came back in the fall and wintertime, that was the fighting season, and then left, as you said, and abandoned these fort sites. And, and the forts, it's important, I think, for listeners to understand, too, is that they aren't these stone fortifications one might see in Europe, or not the Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine. These are earthen mounds with pine logs and, and a small stockade, and they were rudimentary, and they were made of, of organic material. They would burn down part of the infrastructure and then quickly be able to rebuild it the next season. They were ephemeral. They were used as supply depots to be able to get troops further down the line and keep supplies coming to the troops into the interior of Florida. Because in the war period, during the 1830s, 1840s, territorial period in Florida, especially in the interior and southern parts of the state, there was no infrastructure. There were no roads. There were no established towns. So the army had to create that infrastructure. And I think that's a key part of the role of these forts, why they were important, why they were constructed, and why they had to be maintained, and why they had to allocate so much in terms of cost to maintaining these forts is that the the success of the campaign really relied on the success of these forts and the maintenance of these forts. And they burned them down, and then you have the Florida climate. So archaeologists who come by don't have much to work with. So that, to me, points out why it's so important to have these records from Fort Dade with the Florida Historical Society. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. The archaeological record is scant. However, the Army kept great record. The Army tried to keep track of every penny that was spent. Another thing to point out, too, in terms of looking at primary sources, often after these forts were abandoned, there may have been parts of the fort that still existed. Early pioneers and settlers came to Florida and often used the same roads that the Army built, and they would establish their towns or their settlements around an old fort site. 
so say it had been abandoned, they'd sort of go ahead and use the land that had already been cleared by the army. And they would utilize, there was wood or something in a fort for some of their early construction. So that's another later importance of the forts. And what's interesting too is that because of that, some of the first federal surveys that were done of the Florida Peninsula show where these fort sites were, because there was still at least some remnants of the fort there in the 1840s, 1850s in some cases. So oftentimes it's a combination of archaeological record and any kind of documentation that we can find to get an idea of what the shape of the palisades were, you know, what the shape of the fort was, where exactly it was in terms of the township and range numbers so that you can translate that to contemporary geospatial data to figure out exactly where these sites were because Florida tends to swallow up <laughs> man-made objects if they're left unattended rather quickly. The land will take it back over so it can be hard to find exactly where these fort sites were. You talked a little bit about how unhealthy it was for soldiers, and that was not even during the summer season, which was much worse, but it was unhealthy during the fighting season. We know of this because of journal notes taken by Army physicians. One of these, in fact, is what you've described as your favorite item in the collection. What is it? Yeah, it's a journal written by Jacob Rett Mott. He joins the Army as the rank of assistant surgeon. Very soon, he is sent down to Florida. So this is like 1836. So this is the beginning of the war period. Things are really heating up. He actually has a pretty unique experience. He gets to see the entire state from the Georgia border all the way down to Key Largo. He's present for a lot of really key moments, especially early on in the war. And he writes about it in his field notes. And then later, after he leaves the Army, sometime after 1845, he puts it all together into a handwritten journal, and that's what the Florida Historical Society has now. So it's actually a narrative. It's not his original field notes, but we have the narrative that he wrote. It's the only one that we know of that exists. There was a later edition that looks like it had been partially written by him, partially written by somebody else. But when he died, it was never published. So the Historical Society got the book, and then in the 1950s, an historian published the transcription of the journal that you can find today. It's no longer in print. University Press of Florida published it. Really a fascinating look from the eyes of a Harvard-educated surgeon, what was actually happening in Florida. And as you pointed out, disease, he talks about in every single chapter. That's all he was doing, was dealing with <laughs> dealing with sick soldiers, tracing through the swamps, and then those that were dying from disease as well. And he talks a bit about Florida. Didn't seem to like Florida very much. Uh, at one point, he said it was the, the poorest country that any two men fought over. <laughs> but it's just one of these unique perspectives. It is very outside of the rigid standard military description of what was happening. It is not field report. He was present for a number of key moments, one of which was the capture of Osceola and parade of Osceola, and he threw with him into Fort Payton, uh, south of St. Augustine. Tell us how Mott described that scene and described Osceola in particular. From the tone, at least, of this particular passage, he sounds like there was much jubilation in the camp. They were excited. They thought, okay, this is great. We now have the leader of the resistance. And they thought the war was going to be over here fairly soon. They thought, oh, great, we've got all of the, the major players, so this should be good. We, we can end this thing rather quickly. He writes here, I'll read. This is just a, a brief passage from after the capture. He says here, quote, We thus, by one fell swoop, secured Osceola with other war chiefs and 80 of their picked warriors, thus breaking in a great degree the force of the nation. And though the war was continued, we had drawn the fangs from the reptiles. General Jessup, who arrived at Fort Payton during the talks, gave orders to have them immediately march to town and safely secured under lock and key in the fort, unquote. So uh, he actually watched the columns of troops bringing Osceola into town. He says he was sitting on a stump just staring at this person that they'd heard so much about by that point. And he describes him as such here later on in the passage, quote, he was at the time of his capture about 35 years old. And his person, rather below than average the common height, was elegantly formed with hands and feet effeminately small. He had a countenance expressive of much thought and cunning, and though when captured evidently sad and careworn, the fire of his flashing eyes was unsubdued. His forehead was tolerably high and cast in an intellectual mode, the upper portion, which was generally concealed by his hair being worn low and hanging out in front, expressed dignity and firmness, while the full arched brow indicated a man who thought much and intensely. His eyes were black and piercing, and when animated were full of dark fire, but when in repose they were softer than the soft eye of a woman. His mouth, when relieved by a smile, wore an expression of great sweetness, and his lips were chiseled with the accuracy of sculpture. His address was easy 
and his bearing affable and courtly, and his salutations full of smiles, and like most of the Indians, hearty in the shake of his hand, unquote. That's kind of interesting. One of the reasons why you and I may be frustrated that we don't have his contemporaneous notes is because we can look at the notes and see, is that what he thought at the time? Or did he incorporate some of the other mythology about Osceola came in the years since that he wrote? Oh, absolutely. And I've thought about that. And I'm certain that he had to have added in some of what became the lore of Osceola after this particular incident, the capture, and then his subsequent death in captivity. It just led to what became the martyrdom, especially as the war dragged on. And like I said, he left the army by 1845, and there was still all kinds of issues and problems going on in Florida. And when he wrote this, I'm sure he was aware of that. Now, he did say that he received the painting that Colonel Vinton had done a, a likeness of Osceola. And he does say here in the text that picture looks very much like how he remembered Osceola. So he did say that it was fairly accurate based on his observations. So. And I'd also be curious to know how much time did he actually spend with him. He talks as if he conversed personally with Osceola while in captivity. Now, did he actually? I don't know. Was he just present for some sort of interrogation? Or uh, was he the physician that was assigned to check his vitals and to treat him if injured? I mean, I don't know. Not having the original field notes were at a at a loss, but, you know, this is still pretty good. <laughs> Today, when we hear surgeon, we think a cutter. We don't think a physician. So when we say he was a surgeon, really we're saying he was a physician. Correct. And oftentimes, what we read about in his journal is he's just tending to the soldier who has dysentery, wasn't necessarily cutting amputating arms, although that did happen. He had been trained to deal with battlefield injury, removing musket balls and that sort of thing. But no, most of his time was dealing with disease and heat exhaustion more than anything. But his title was surgeon. He did get to use some surgeon skills at the second battle of Loxahatchee, which was later in January of 1838. He wasn't holding a gun. He was back away from the front line and wasn't actually at the battle, but what he was doing was dealing with the injuries. I'll read another quick quote. It gets into the actual battle. He talks about the Tennessee Volunteers and their involvement in the attack. And then he writes here about the aftermath. And he says here, quote, Many of the soldiery were employed in collecting the killed and wounded and bringing them to the foot of a spreading oak beneath whose widely flung branches were strewn a score of dead and dying. There before us lay death in his most horrible forms, bodies pierced with ghastly wounds and locks begrimmed with gore. In one direction, leaning against a tree, there reclined a soldier of the artillery, his face pale and ospeared with an expression of anguish, one hand pressed to his side from which the blood slowly oozed. In another direction, lay stretched upon the ground, with face turned upwards, glazed eyes wide open, indicated an exemption from pain. True, his sufferings were over. He had gone to the place where physical pain is unknown, unquote. <laughs> so I think from these passages, and again, this was written years later, he was still affected by what he saw. And Loxahatchee is one of the, there just weren't that many of these large-scale pitched battles or engagements. So when you see something like this, especially after days and weeks and weeks of marching and of your basic, you know, just the military protocol, the day-to-day -day without any action, and then boom, suddenly, here are all of your fellow soldiers that you were just talking to, and, and some of whom are dead, and you're having to deal with them, and you're, you're called into action. I think it was a jarring experience for him. You also have two editions of John T. Sprague's book on the Second Seminole War. What is this book, and why is that book important? Yeah, John Sprague's book is often the, the go-to for anybody doing research into the Second Seminole Wars. In fact, if you read any paper about the Seminole Wars and go through the references, I can guarantee you that John Sprague's book is, is, uh, is mentioned. It was published shortly after the Second Seminole War, but before the Third Seminole War. And John Sprague had spent time in Florida. I don't remember offhand what his rank was, but he spent quite a bit of time in Florida. And what he tried to do was compile all of the official records, transcribe them, put them into a book, so we have this U.S. Army account of the war in Florida. And oftentimes, folks use these as primary source material because, as I said, they're transcriptions of letters. So you'll see them cited all the time when we talk about different instances and different battles and skirmishes or, or whatever it is about the Seminole Wars. John Sprague covered a lot of that in this book. So to have a first edition, it's pretty cool. Now, it has been published in later editions, and that's a great question. You know, how does the original publication compare to a later edition? There are usually uh, editorial changes and things that are made, so so all of that is important. So if you really want to get back to it, even the source, you want to research about Sprague himself, about his experiences, that book is a great place to start. And having two copies is great because it's still a fairly rare publication. You don't see too many of these that pop up. Sprague writes about the Battle of Wahoo Swamp, and so does Mott. 
What value is it to have two accounts of that in your collection? And if I understand correctly, you have three because Richard Keith Cole wrote about it. Yes, that's right. And this is this is great. As historians, you want to have the most perspectives that you can get of one single incident to be able to get as close as you can to reality. Because everybody is going to have their own agenda. Everybody has their own idea of what the outcome was like. And even during the actual battle, every person that was present saw different aspects of that event. So in this case, a, a battle, the Battle of Wahoo Swamp. Richard Keith Call, for instance, when he wrote about it later on in a document that we have, including a letter written to Tallahassee newspaper, is all about him defending his actions because he came under a lot of scrutiny for kind of a blunder, essentially leading the Florida militia into a, a, a terrible situation and ultimately losing the battle. So we see that. Then you see Sprague, who wasn't actually in the same position as the other columns of truth. All of that plays into how we better understand what the actual conflict was like, because we're seeing it from three different perspectives, and all of that is incredibly important. Heck, we'd love to see an interview with every single soldier <laughs> to try and piece together how they experienced it, but even having three from one particular event is vitally important. Sprague's book is a primary source with his recollections, but it's also a secondary source because he's quoting official documents. How does that dual nature assist with further research inquiries? I always look at the Sprague book as being a good anchor. It's a good foundation and a good start. But then let's say you find a reference to Jessup's column in South. Well, Jacob Redmott was with General Jessup. So then you could go to the Mott Journal and get his perspective from the Army surgeon who witnessed the same event. Through those various sources, you can get a fuller picture of what probably actually transpired based on the official account and then these more anecdotal accounts. You have a journal of John W. Phelps from 1838. Who was Phelps and what about the Florida Wars comes out from his journal? Phelps was in Florida, I believe, in at least some part of 1837, 1838. So it actually overlapped with Jacob Redmott. What he writes are these general descriptions of what's happening in Florida. He talks about some of the battles, and in his own journal, he admits that he feels like the war itself is going to be a hard one, and that the U.S. is kind of going about it the wrong way, which is kind of interesting. But the majority of his journal deals with Cherokee removal from North Carolina. So he, again, he spent some time in Florida and then was reassigned to uh, a detachment up in North Carolina and Essentially, what they were doing was forcible removal of Cherokee, and it's in those descriptions that I think you get a lot of the, uh, at least the empathy. You know, he writes about these people having literally nothing but scraps of, of clothes on their back and having to march, you know, miles and miles and miles, leaving their ancestral homes. And so this is kind of interesting because you get this empathy from a soldier. This is somebody who's executing his orders, and, uh, and that comes through in the journal. Compare that to similar activities and things that were happening in Florida. Burning of towns and forced removal and all that. But one can also see the difference in the removal or how the Cherokees that he describes reacted and how the Seminoles that he describes reacted. Exactly. It was that stand and fight and fight to the last man's mentality or the capitulation. And throughout the war and as these things progressed more and more agreed to the relocation agreements and more were shipped off. What's striking about this journal too, John Phelps was an artist and he's got these really great, they, they must be I guess just portraits of fellow soldiers and these little drawings of what it was like in camp and there's one of these soldiers who were playing cards and you can see the tents in the background and another one's training a dog it looks like to do tricks I mean pretty interesting, seemed like a very interesting guy must have had some education, rudimentary education his uh, prose and writing style is uh, fairly clean and complete and the Society has a collection of presidential messages about the Second Seminole War. What are these messages, and why are these something that you would want in your collection? Messages from the President and messages from the Senate, from the Secretary of War, about what's happening in Florida are vitally important to understanding why something like this continues. Because with hindsight, we can look back and say, what an incredible waste of men, material, and time. Why did this war last for seven years? Why was there a third war? Why did all this happen? But when you read through those on the, the 30,000 foot level, when you look at it from above, and you look at it from Washington's perspective, and from, from the U.S. Congress's perspective, you can kind of get a better idea of where they're coming from and why this is happening. They were, you know, like many wars, you're doing threat or perceived threat based on the information given to you from on the ground. So, and then once you're in it, 
it's not so easy to get out, try and figure out how do we end this thing. And that's what you often see is close to crushing the enemy, it's close to being done, and it's almost over, and we're going to get it, you know. And these are, these are common themes that you hear throughout history, because it's always, uh, okay, we started it, when can we finish it, sort of thing. And you see a lot of that in those official government publications. Then you have a volume from the early 1860s on something called the Blue Script. What was the Blue Script? These are important. This gets into kind of an interesting part of the Seminole campaigns, and that is the role of volunteers and militia soldiers in the war. And Mott, in his journal, gets into it a little bit. You read this in a lot of the accounts from the regular army, the rank and file in the army. There was a lot of friction between not only the Florida militia, but other volunteer militias that formed from Alabama and Georgia, Tennessee, and these other states that rode into town looking to get in a fight with an Indian, read the reports in their local newspapers, they raised an army, came down to Florida, and let's, let's fight sort of deal. One big problem is that these terms of service for these militias were fairly short, a matter of months. They get down here, hang out in camp, get drunk, shoot off some rifles, and look for a Seminole to go fight, and then then they'd be done, and then they'd head out, you know. And you read about the army having to clear trees, and you know, these are the people on the payroll who don't have a choice, and they're stuck there day in and day out. But these blue scripts or these warrants, they're essentially payment. So the militia had to be compensated in some way. And oftentimes they got them through these land bounties. So if you served with a militia unit, you could be paid in land in Florida. And that varied. And, and there were different acts of Congress. And I'm not entirely clear on like exact acreage. Uh, you know, some are 80, 160 acres. But you can see that actually in the general land office records, if you do a search now through the Department of Interior's Bureau of Land Management general land office records, you can search for these original land bounties. And it'll tell you so-and-so is receiving this because they served in the first Florida militia or whatever during the, the Seminole War. Um, so it was payment. And that's an important part, too, because that's a big piece of the Florida story, because a lot of settlers, white settlers that moved into Florida, moved here on these bounties, or they sold the bounties to somebody else that prompted that settlement. So it ties in, again, with this development story and development of infrastructure and how the Seminole Wars impacted the movement of people into Florida, not only Seminoles moving out, but then other settlers moving into the So these are the official documents and lists of folks who were eligible and that sort of thing. But it's important to the broader story because this is part of the impact of war, acquisition of land, which gets to the heart of Indian removal. Why are we forcibly removing and fighting these groups? Well, it all comes down to acquisition of land. It's mostly like a listing, so it's closer to like a copy of government schedules that talk about who is applying for bounties, who's getting them, who's receiving them through the comptroller's office, how that payment is being doled out. And there are other volumes I think we have to deal with that from earlier periods, but this one's kind of interesting because it talks about the blue script, you know, and you don't see that, that term very, used very often. Captain Coe wrote Red Patriots, and that was an 1898 book. What kind of impact did that have on general knowledge about the Seminole? Coe's book is interesting. I think it's one of the earliest uh, even-handed in the interpretation, and almost a pro-Seminole book, very much outside of the normal hoorah uh, army, you know, we, we, got, we got them taken care of, we removed those Indians. This was kind of, I think, a counter-narrative to what was being perpetuated at that time. And it was more, not necessarily contradictory, but a little more discursive and reflexive of what the Army and what the U.S. government actually did in removing the Seminole. Coe was a member of the Florida Historical Society, too. We have a lot of his correspondence records. Minnie Moore Wilson wrote The Seminoles of Florida in 1896. Minnie Wilson, she was instrumental in South Florida and worked in South Florida at a time when, beginnings of kind of the progressive era in Florida history, when environmental preservation and a look at the Everglades and the people of the Everglades as a piece of Florida history and Florida culture as being important. And her book, I know, was one of the first looks at the Seminole Indians as not necessarily as a warring entity, but as cultural look. And she was instrumental in helping to secure reservations, too, for the Seminoles in the 20th century. So she was kind of an advocate for the Seminole tribe that survived the wars, descendants of those who had actually fought in the war period. Her book, starting in the 20th century, you start kind of seeing a shift in how Seminoles and Nikosukis are being portrayed. And that's in line, too, with another uh, party that, that came to Florida. I don't know if you're familiar with the Dimmick. They spent a lot of time in southwest Florida, but Julian and his father, they were wealthy New York socialites, but got fascinated with Florida. And they just built a boat, came down here, and started traveling in the interior of the Everglades, mostly from the southwest Florida into, like, Big Cypress and those areas, and photographed Seminole Indians in, like, 05, 1908, 1910. 
2012. And we, these are some of the earliest photographs that we have, and they were now the original glass plate negatives are at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Gerald Milanich worked with Nina Root and published a, a book called Hidden Seminoles a few years ago. I wrote a review about it when I was in grad school, and it was fascinating because it's all of these glass plate negatives of a time when the Seminole tribe is now sort of reopening, and that's what's happening in this time period. It's this reopening and reintroduction of the Seminoles to American society, I think, in a way. And you see that, and she's part of that movement. Put her up with May Man Jennings and some of these other folks. We've discussed the more important material in the Society's collection on the Seminole Wars. Does the Historical Society collect any museum materials? So when the Society reorganized first decade of the 20th century, they just collected everything. We actually have a Seminole a hand-carved spoon, and we have a mortar and pestle that was used for mashing corn that was given to us by Tommy Tallahassee, I think was his name, in like 1908. And we ended up with all kinds of pre-Columbian artifacts. So we had arrow points, pottery shirts, and, and all kinds of stuff that they didn't really have a great facility to store this material in because the society sort of moved around. It's all over the place. Usually whenever a new president would come in, the society's collection would move wherever the president was located. They didn't have their own building until much, much later. So, so a lot of those artifacts were just sort of jumbled together in boxes and, and strewn all over them. But about mid-20th century, the society deaccessioned a lot of those artifacts. And a lot of that went to the Natural History Museum. There were other large artifacts like a bronze bell that was located at a Spanish mission from the uh, 18th century, 17th, 18th century. That went to the uh, Florida Museum of History in, in Tallahassee. So a lot of this stuff either went on permanent loan or was actually uh, deaccessioned. It was really parsed down the artifact collection to only a few items that are still very interesting. For whatever reason, we still have them here. One of which I'll just briefly talk about. We have two hunting rifles that date from the early 19th century there. They were based on the markings that were made in Pennsylvania. They were called like a Jaeger-style rifle, or these German hunting rifles that are a little bit shorter. And we have these because they were used in a duel outside of Tallahassee in the 1830s. It was called the Alston-Reed Duel. You can write about it. There's a Florida Historical Quarterly article about it. It was very interesting. Both of these men, they were actively involved in respective political parties. And one had accused the other of something else in print, so they challenged each other to a duel. One guy shot the other guy, uh, but the story didn't end there. They took the musket ball out of the dead guy, and the family tracked down the other guy and shot him with the same <laughs> musket ball. It was just this wild story of like revenge and defeat. But the original musket, somebody kept them, and gave them to the Florida Historical Society. We have them here in the safe, these two original hunting rifles. And then we have a few musket balls from the Civil War, a few random things like some knives. We have a poster that was put up in St. Augustine, the citizens of St. Augustine, that according to the treaty arrangements, St. Augustine is no longer Spanish territory. It is now American. You can either move or stay here, figure out what to do. And one other interesting artifact that we have here in the collection, we have the only known copy of the Republic of East Florida's Constitution <laughs> when the Patriots set up their own government in Northeast Florida. And they wrote out a constitution with the preamble and the rights of the citizens and whether they were going to deal with foreign countries and all that kind of stuff. And we have it. We have the only known handwritten copy in the safe. So we have a few of those kind of artifacts here, but... Uh, not enough to really fill a museum. It's just a few things that every once in a while we'll put on display inside the archive. For the most part, they stay in the safe with the rare book. Now let's talk a little bit about the Society itself. The Society was started in 1856. Why was it started, and how has it evolved over the years? Yeah, so it started in 1856, and it was really a group of lawyers, judges, and prominent businessmen in St. Augustine who thought, you know what, we've got centuries of history here in Florida, we need to start collecting and preserving this material. So they started in 1856. Nothing really got off the ground because the Civil War happened and the society essentially disbanded. There was a little bit of activity in the 1890s, you know, some folks trying to get together and get a formal organization going again. And then in the beginning of the 20th century, 1902, they finally got together, incorporated as the Florida Historical Society. 
led by former governor Francis P. Fleming in 1902, and then they started with publication. They started actively soliciting and acquiring documents and started building up a proper research library in the time period. And there were some pretty prominent Floridians. Henry Flagler, who's a member of the Florida Historical Society, he donated the first book to the library. And it's a 1605 edition of La Florida del Inca, which is a narrative account of Fernando de Soto's expedition. And that was part of his private library that he donated to us. We published the only academic journal strictly on Florida history called the Florida Historical Quarterly. And it's been in print since 1908, almost continuously, the point in, in the teens where they didn't publish the journal. But since 1908, we've published that journal four times a year. And the Society's mission has been pretty much the same since it was in 1902, and that's to collect, preserve, and disseminate information about Florida's history. Now, however, a big part of what we do is public outreach, and that's really where the mission has evolved. So we do a lot of public outreach missions like the Florida Frontiers radio program and the Florida Frontiers television program. We offer internships. We do a lot of K-12 Florida history education modules. We do short videos for students, that sort of thing. So it's all about, it's really a lot about education. We are still collecting and preserving documents through the archives and making those available. But another big component is that education part. The public can become a member of the society, and that's benefit of being a member is that you get the journal? Correct. That's probably the primary benefit of joining the society. We have different levels of joining. You can get a digital-only copy of the quarterly, or you can get the print edition. Um, and you get that shipped to your house four times a year. You also get a discount on books. The society publishes books on Florida history, so you get a discount as a member. And you get our newsletter, and it helps the society. As I said, we are a nonprofit organization. We don't receive funding from the state of Florida. Like other state historical societies, we are a private 501c3. So what we get through donations and what we get through membership and, and everything else is through targeted grant funding for various projects. So that all helps the society. And quarterly is a great read. Um, like I said, it is the only journal strictly on Florida history, covers the entire state, lots of different topics. We do some commemorative issues for the Viva Florida 500-year 2013 celebration. We did a special issue covering each of the five centuries. Special guest editors came in and all the articles deal with those centuries. So we do that sort of thing as well to kind of commemorate these big milestones in Florida's history. Tell us about the radio program that the Florida Historical Society produces. Florida Historical Society produces a weekly radio magazine, we call it, known as Florida Frontiers. It airs on public radio stations throughout the state of Florida, so you can listen to it live. But it's also available as a podcast. You can download it directly from our website or and listen to it streaming, or you can get it from your favorite podcasting app as well. As we talked about primary sources, Florida Frontiers program becomes a primary source. You're interviewing Frank Laumer, for instance, about what he did in researching the Seminole Wars. And so now you're not just documents, you're actually audio or video. Absolutely. Gosh, I think we're just short of 400 episodes of uh, Florida Frontiers over the course of 10 years. Some of those interviews are with people like Frank who have now passed away. We have this great record of, in their own words, you know, that becomes an oral history in some respects. So, so yeah, we're certainly aware that that's what we're creating and that's what we want to do. It is now, it's ephemeral, it's something you can listen to on the radio and get, you know, a great piece of Florida history. But they're also archived on our website. You can go back, you know, the, the 400 or so episodes and dig through and find these early editions and then cite it your source and say, well, According to an interview that Frank Palmer did with Florida Frontiers, this is where he came up with that information, you know, and then now it becomes part of another narrative. We're, we're happy that, that it has become a primary source. And it's used in classrooms, too. We know of uh, teachers that use both the radio program and Florida Frontiers, the TV show, which now available. It airs on public broadcasting stations around Florida, but is also on YouTube. They're all free. Radio show is free. Anybody can download and listen to any episode they want at any time, anywhere in the world, and learn about Florida history. But there's always more, too. We circle back and we'll often look at the same topics several times and interview different people and get different perspectives. And I think that's, again, all part of the traditional historical process. The society is not just for academics and for professional researchers. The public can come out. If the public wants to come out, what can they expect? Florida Historical Society Library of Florida History, where I work, is primarily a research library and an archive. So if you were to walk in the building, there's not a whole lot on display. We have a few things out. Uh, we just don't really have the display space. The building is really designed to be a research library. So we have a large research room with these long tables. And if anybody wants to come in and do research, they can. The only thing we ask is that you just let us know ahead of time, either email uh, or give me a call and just say, hey, I'd love to see anything you have in the Seminole Wars. We can talk about collections. We have an online card catalog. 
catalogs so people can go through and research what they want to see. Send me the list, figure out a date, and then they come in. You have them sign in. It's an archive, so you can't come in during bringing your uh, cup of coffee and food and this and that. There are certain restrictions as far as what you can bring in. Bags have to be down on the floor. But you can come and bring your own digital camera to photograph documents. And then what we do, either myself or one of our archival volunteers or staff, brings you the documents and people can sit there and go through them. You don't have to be a member of the Florida Historical Society. You do not have to be an academic. You don't have to be a student. It really doesn't matter. If you have an interest in Florida history, and we have a collection that falls in line with what you're looking for, just let us know. We're here to facilitate that research and to help people better understand our state's history. Uh, Ben, you're the archivist and the director of educational resources for the society. What does this entail? Probably 50%, uh, more like 50 to 75% of my job is archival work. It is collecting material. It's dealing with donors. It is rehousing documents, getting our volunteers and staff working on basic conservation, and then cataloging materials. We also offer internships. We have a lot of history undergraduate and graduate students who work with us doing archival projects and learn about how history is done in the real world. So outside of academia, outside of the classroom, what are folks doing in the public history realm? Can I take my history degree and actually work somewhere? So that's all part of the educational outreach initiatives that we do here at the Society. Fortunately, it's not all just sitting and reading through the documents. It's just cataloging and making them available so that somebody else can, you know. That's sort of the split between archives and the historians, too. But there's a lot of overlap, certainly. Although the society's collection is made of paper, for people coming by, you don't recommend that they kill a forest in order to copy documents. It's more paperless. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I always encourage folks to bring either a digital camera or nowadays a a modern smartphone has a really high resolution digital camera and take photos of the document that can then be utilized later. You can upload to any kind of cloud storage, convert them to PDFs, or better yet, if you want a high resolution copy, we can make scans on our flatbed scanners and then you can bring a thumb drive, upload it to a thumb drive, and there you go, you've got the document. Ben, if somebody wants to get an appointment to come and research, how do they do it? The best way is to email me, is to send it right to the archivist at myfloridahistory.org. That's the easiest way. Even when the office is open, I'm not at my desk, and I end up going through all this, tons and tons and tons of missed calls that are you know, research-related. So the easiest, email me, and then I can get back. You know, I got my email to my phone. I can email at home and all that stuff. So just shoot me an email and say, hey, I've got this. Do you have any other collections? And, you know, I've got these dates. Can I come in? And, you know, we'll make it work. And DBSE. Thanks so much for joining us again for the Seminole Wars. Sure. Thank you for having me, Patrick. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rudy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.